All right, so we are walking up to what was Dominic's, otherwise known as the birthplace of Domino's. It's an unassuming building, so you wouldn't know. It's currently a burrito place called Stuff. Laura, why are we here? Well, April, because this is where it all begins. It's in Ypsilanti, Michigan, a small town in southeast Michigan tucked between Ann Arbor and Detroit. It's a college town home to Eastern Michigan University. But I wanted to come here on a pilgrimage of sorts, to go to the place where this whole pizza saga begins. You know, it's funny, we like drive by these sort of inane, innocuous buildings all the time. There were probably multiple businesses that have come and gone through them, and they're so unassuming that a multi-billion dollar corporation and the largest pizza chain in the world started out of these tiny little brick buildings. Sort of amazing. We make sense of the world through origin stories, tales we tell ourselves of how something came to be. For this story, it all starts here, Southeast Michigan, the pizza capital. That's right, we said it. It's a bold claim. You know, but tucked between strip malls on busy streets in the suburbs of southeast Michigan is the chain pizza origin story. And we're not here to fight about the best pizza in the nation. We're here to talk about the most pizza in America. We're going to explain why your pizza, wherever you are, is connected to this great state. I'm April Bear. Thin crust with pepperoni, mushroom, and onion, please. I'm Laura Weber Davis. Usually pineapple and deep dish, but I'll take just about any topping as long as it can be dipped in ranch. From Michigan Radio, this is Doe Dynasty. The story of how Michigan became the pizza chain capital of the world and shaped pizza as we know it today. On this episode, the pizza origin story. Pizza night falls on Wednesdays in the Weber Davis house. We can't ever seem to make it to Friday. It's like this middle of the week drag on trying to decide what's for dinner. Did you wash your hands? Pizza is a midweek life raft. It's cheap, filling. It has the four food groups, kind of. It'll do. And because of this, little baby Americans everywhere form strong pizza opinions early. My youngest, he's in preschool. What's your favorite kind of pizza? Pineapple pizza. This is a a deep dish square? Yes. 
It's because it has crust. That has this part. That has the sauce. Mm -hmm. I really like sauce. Yeah, pineapple deep dish. It runs in my jeans. My older kid falls on the complete opposite side of the pizza spectrum. She can't stand sauce and prefers a big, floppy, New York-style slice. And what do I sometimes get a little bit upset that you do to all of your pieces of pizza? Take all the sauce off. And what do you do when you scrape the sauce off? Rub it everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) You scrape it all over your plate? Yes. I get it. I have strong opinions about pizza, too. Like, don't wipe your pizza sauce off. And you should squirt some ranch on your plate for dipping. Absolutely. It makes sense that we all have strong opinions about pizza because we eat so much of it. You may not be surprised that some estimates have about half of us eating pizza at least once a week in the U.S. But there are some numbers that may surprise you. Like in the U.S. alone, the pizza industry is worth $46 billion. Most of that pizza money comes from pizza chains. And maybe you have a Hungry Howie's and a Jets in your area. But I can say with near certainty that you are within driving distance of a Domino's and a Little Caesars. And all four of those chains were started right here in Michigan. So where did American pizza begin? As with all food trends, it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly one incident in one kitchen of one restaurant. We can tell you a little bit about before it got here. Depending on how you define it, some people date pizza back thousands of years. I love leftover pizza. I don't really care how old it is. That is really old. But for this story, we're taking you to Italy. Naples, to be exact. What we now know or what is called pizza, meaning a baked yeasted bread with the toppings baked into it, dates back to about the 1700s and 1800s in Naples, Italy. My name is Carol Helstowski. I'm a professor of history at the University of Denver and the author of Pizza, a Global History. How do you like your pizza? My favorite is really just a classic, just a plain cheese pizza with mushrooms on it. Like, to me, that's, that's happiness. When Carol says that pizza dates back to the 17 and 1800s, what she means is this is the time when people mostly travelers, first started writing about pizza. That is based on not the eating record, because I don't have a time machine to go back and see what people were exactly eating, but that's based on the textual record. And that textual record describes pizza like this. A flatbread topped with usually bits and pieces of fish or herbs that people would forage. So it was known as kind of a fast food. I like to also refer to pizza as a creative process in the sense that, you know, people were rummaging around and trying out different toppings and using what they had on hand. So picture it. Seaside Italian ports with the tangy scent of salt water drifting through the air combined with sweet marjoram and basil. But the people writing about pizza were not so enticed by the sights and the smells. They were disgusted by it. If there was a storefront pizzeria, people who observed them said, you know, sort of these, um, how do I want to put it, unsavory characters would be sitting around outside eating pizza. Yes, unsavory pizza eaters, my kind of people. But who are they? 
Mostly the residents of Naples, the workers, there were an awful lot of sailors in Naples because it's a port city. There were also soldiers stationed in the city and the working poor. I called it street food, and I literally mean that, uh, in that there would be mobile vendors, and they would sell them, I guess by the slice or by the piece, depending on what the buyer could afford. Pizza was the people's food. Still is. Pizza for the people. So how did pizza make its way to America? It came with the pizza eaters. In this migration, millions of Europeans left their homelands to settle in new countries across the seas. Almost two-thirds of them came to the United States. By the late 19th century, there were massive outwaves of Italian migrants, including many um, Italians who left from the South, where there was little economic opportunity. When they got to wherever they were going, whether that was New York or Buenos Aires, they tried to replicate the foods from home. Like pizza. There's an awful lot of origin myths about pizza. And so if you look at any standard history of pizza, uh, people make a big deal about the first pizza commercial license in New York City was from 1905. But I think it's safe to assume that Italian-Americans or Italian migrants were eating pizza before then. I mean, I think a lot of people also know that when Italians did first start migrating to the U.S. in numbers, they were completely vilified. Was was their food vilified in the same way? Yes, you're absolutely right. Italian immigrants and their their habits, right, and those included food habits, were treated with some suspicion. There's commentary from social workers, from other authorities, that Italians ate a lot of fruits and vegetables. They were known for growing these foods uh, on any little scrap of land that they had. And they were also known for consuming, of course, um, wine and garlic. And these were greeted with much, I won't say disgust, but certainly suspicion. How did pizza go from something treated with suspicion at best to something ubiquitous on the American table? Well, there's one story that we came across a lot in trying to answer this question. And it goes like this. During World War II, U.S. soldiers went to Italy ate pizza, and loved it. So much so that when they returned home, they set out on a quest for pizza. But historical reality actually has some holes to poke in that story. If we think about Italy circa 1943 to 1945, we know that the economy was devastated and had been devastated for some time, even before the war. So I don't think American soldiers would be stationed in Naples thinking, wow, this is really great, filling, wonderful food, uh, when in fact most Neapolitans and most Italians throughout the peninsula did not have enough food to eat. All right, so maybe we don't know exactly why pizza started becoming so popular in America, but we do know how it became popular. You begin to see American published cookbooks referencing this food called pizza. 
Newspaper articles had to explain to people what pizza was. It wasn't ubiquitous. That's Scott Wiener. He's a writer and columnist for Pizza Today magazine, who also leads tours in New York based around all the pizza hotspots and pizza history. Talk about living the dream. And his favorite pizza? I don't like a singular flavor profile or a singular texture. I like it to be dynamic. And I like my journey through the slice to be dynamic so that it ends in a different place that it starts. That is so next level. Mm, yeah. He's like he's like a pizza sommelier. Well, these articles that Scott's talking about were there to, let's say, educate the masses about pizza. Good afternoon. I'm Mrs. Brady. Today I'm going to make that popular Italian dish, pizza pie. You've all probably heard about it, and if you like the recipe, uh, please get a pencil and paper, and then you can take it down as I go. They had to explain, oh, it's an Italian tomato pie. And they would give a recipe, and the recipe would be put a slice of American cheese and ketchup on an English muffin. And, you know, it wasn't at all the Italian thing that we now look at it. And the toppings, I recall there was one pizza that they suggested putting liverwurst and raw onions on. Oh! I, as I, as I, yes. Yeah. Um, as I looked at that, I thought, isn't that a sandwich? Second topping, we'll use pepperoni. The men really go for this. Anchovies, blood sauce, fish paste, canned spiced meats. But it's the 1950s, remember? Jiggling aspics and tuna raisin salads and stuff like that. Recall that garlic and wine-averse non-Italians of yesteryear who suspiciously eyed the fresh fruits and vegetables that Italian migrants grew. I won't say disgust, but certainly suspicion. It's really not that much had changed. The smell of garlic and oregano today is just so accepted, but we have to remember that even in the late 1950s and early 60s, they weren't accepted flavor combinations. They weren't accepted smells. And I'm sure you'll all become real pizza fans soon. Canned spiced meats, shelf-stable pizza kits, liverwurst and raw onions, American cheese and ketchup. Now that's pizza. I am so amazed that anybody ate enough food and didn't manage to starve to death on the truly, <laughs> the truly awful cooking that period in the United States to even survive to the present day. <laughs> it wasn't just recipes and take-home kits that eased the American masses gently into the unfamiliar flavors of pizza. It was also because there were just more places to eat pizza post-World War II. As people kind of went back to peacetime living and thought about, you know, what they were going to do for their careers or their lives, we see sort of a growth of small businesses. And to set up a pizzeria was a pretty decent opportunity for not just Italian immigrants. It was profitable and there was pretty low overhead. Right. All you need was some cheese, tomatoes, flour, and you don't need a fancy sit-down place to make it. Think about the time when all this was happening. The United States is changing fast. Network of highways, two-car family homes, and the shifting workforce. All of a sudden, conditions were ripe for some new, faster food options. Hamburgers, fried chicken, french fries. All these fast food chains sprouting up across the country. Right. And here in southeast Michigan, 
at that time, there were two guys who knew nothing about each other or about pizza, who both saw an opportunity in this changing America. What they knew was that Americans were developing a palate for pizza. What they couldn't foresee was just how huge of an industry this would become. We'll get to that in a moment. Support for the Doe Dynasty podcast comes from Visit Detroit, featuring the Detroit Pizza Pass, a digital passport to curated pizza restaurants in Metro Detroit with mobile check-in opportunities at each location. Information at visitdetroit.com slash digital passes. Support for the Doe Dynasty podcast comes from Visit Detroit, featuring the Detroit Pizza Pass, a digital passport to curated pizza restaurants in Metro Detroit with mobile check-in opportunities at each location. Information at visitdetroit.com slash digital passes. This is Doe Dynasty. I'm April Bear. And I'm Laura Weber Davis. Now that you have heard the story of how pizza came to the United States, we want to tell you how it became huge. Like, I think we can say this, can't we? The American casual food. Oh, yeah, I think so. But, you know, to get there to that ubiquitousness that you're talking about, you really have to talk about these three pizza businesses that started around the same time. Pizza Hut, Little Caesars, and Domino's. Pizza Hut started as a sit-down restaurant by brothers in Wichita, Kansas. But the other two, those both started right here in Michigan by two guys who knew nothing about each other, and they were just a few miles down the road from each other. First up, it's Mike Illich, founder of Little Caesars. Mike was a former minor league baseball player turned door-to-door salesman. One of his um, close aides, a guy named Charlie Jones, once described Mike to me as a street guy, meaning he wasn't a slick businessman. He was just a real Detroiter. He grew up on the West Side. His parents were immigrants from Macedonia. His dad was a skilled tradesman, so they weren't poor, but they weren't wealthy either. That's former Detroit Free Press reporter Bill McGraw. And his pizza of choice? I like uh, Buddy's Pizza, actually, and um, I'll, I'll eat almost anything on it. And I really? like anchovies too. Do you do you um, do you drink the grease out of the cups of uh, pepperoni? pepperoni? Uh, no, you know what? I use it as suntan lotion. <laughs> In many ways, Mike Illich's story plays upon a very well-worn trope of the American dream. He's the son of immigrants from humble beginnings. He works hard and he succeeds big. When he talked about his uh, early days in how he got the idea for Little Caesars. He was a door-to-door salesman. This would have been after the war. The house-to-house salesman symbolizes, in a way, the function of all salesmen, which is to bring goods or services to the attention of the consumer and to help the consumer buy. So he was constantly knocking on people's doors, and he saw the baby boom coming together, and he saw families with three and four pretty young kids sitting around watching TV, moms in the kitchen struggling over dinner, and that's where he had the idea. When when pizza then came in, he made the connection between pizza and making things easy for mom in the kitchen. 
Mike Illich and his wife Marion see an opportunity, and their first pizza shop in Garden City, Metro Detroit, opened in 1959. Originally, they call it Little Caesar's Pizza Treat. I recall sitting on very big flower bags, and I would be sitting there playing, and they would be at the front of the store running the store. That, of course, is Denise Illich, daughter of Mike and Marion Illich. My favorite pizza is extra cheese, fresh Italian sausage, mushroom and onion. She was a vice president at Little Caesars for years. When my dad started, he played baseball and he'd be on a bus around the country. And he, when he had time off, he'd go into restaurants. And if they had some kind of pizza or anything Italian, he loved Italian, but... When he started, so many people told him he was going to fail, that pizza was a fad. Mike and Marion Illich came up with this slow overhead carryout business model. We promised 15-minute service from the time you ordered your pizza to the time you picked it up. I think that they would both say that this surpassed their wildest dreams. I think that they wanted, I would guess, to have a strong restaurant business. Not one. I'm sure they wanted more than one, but I don't think they ever foresaw a national chain. Meanwhile, just 18 miles west, another entrepreneur was evolving his own pizza dream. Tom Monahan, a young man hustling his way into adulthood. You know, he grew up in pretty rough circumstances, um, even though he had a mom, but she couldn't uh, support his brother and him. And he grew up in much of his life and his childhood in an orphanage. When Tom Monahan was young, he wasn't thinking of the pizza business. He was developing interests as any young kid. Tigers baseball, fast cars, cool buildings. These were obsessions that he would carry forward in life. He wanted to be an architect. I think the main way I remember um, uh, Domino's becoming well-known was the fact that Monahan became well-known. And he was such a story in all the things he was doing. Uh, back in 1960, about 18 years ago, I was struggling to stay in the University of Michigan. Uh, and I wasn't able to do it because of uh, financing. This is Tom Monahan speaking in 1979 at the Rotary Club of Ann Arbor. I... Uh, Went to university. I couldn't stay in because I was into the third week and still couldn't afford to buy the first textbook. So one day my brother approached me and said, Say, Dominic's got a pizza place in Ypsilanti that closed up. How'd you like to go in on it with me? That's right. He said Dominic's. There was a place called Dominic's that was open in Ypsilanti. And at this point, Tom Monahan put college on hold. He saw this opportunity in campus life itself. He figured that there was money to be made selling pizza to college students. And so he and his brother took on Dominic's, which was for sale, and it was on the edge of eastern Michigan's campus. His brother quickly lost appetite, if you will, for the pizza business. And Tom would later change its name to Domino's. Which brings us back to this busy, unassuming corridor in Ypsilanti. It was here, next to a church, and what's now a CBD shop that today's top pizza giant began. It outsells its competitors, including Little Caesars and Pizza Hut. I'm so curious about why 
Michigan and specifically that corner, Southeast Michigan, was the birthplace of these multiple national and global chains. And I haven't been able to isolate the reason. Pizza soothsayer Scott Wiener is not alone in wondering about this. Right? We wonder it too. Why here? Was it because of mass production, manufacturing, mindset? Was it because pizza is an immigrant food and auto companies and universities brought people from all over the world to Southeast Michigan? Was it because Michiganders are just, you know, pizza people? Or maybe it's because they knew that you and I, Laura, were going to be here to eat all the every single slice of pizza that and they make could this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe it's all of those things or none of them. But these two businesses, just 18 miles apart, were the beginning of a Doe dynasty that would reach its mozzarella tentacles from southeast Michigan across the rest of the world and would forever change American pizza. If the chains didn't exist, I wouldn't have a job right now. The the chains are absolutely responsible for there being 70,000 pizzerias in the United States right now. And they're responsible for there being such a diverse style set of pizza in the United States and globally. In our next episode, we have lots to tell you about how these pizza princes ascended their thrones, scepters made of sauce, Crusty crowns, baubles made of sausage and onion. You know, we make that dough. We, we have our own formula for that sauce. That's on the next Dough Dynasty. You've been listening to Dough Dynasty, a limited-run series for Michigan Radio. I'm April Bear, mushroom, pepperoni, thin crust. And I'm Laura Weber Davis, pineapple deep dish. And if you like what you've heard, share the pod with a friend. People who pod together and pizza together stay together. Want to hear about some fun facts you might have missed in the podcast? Maybe get recipes for ranch? Sign up for our newsletter to get exclusive pizza-related content and more fun stuff at michiganradio.org slash pizza. This episode was produced by Rachel Ishikawa, who, wild card, likes thin-sliced eggplant on her pizza. Ooh. Yeah. She's also the podcast editor for Doe Dynasty. Other producers on the podcast are Ronia Kavansag, Mercedes Mejia, April Van Buren, and an OG pizza delivery guy, Mike Blank. Our web team is Jody Westrick and Paulette Parker, with help from Emma Winowicki. Special thanks to Pizza Consigliere, Holly Eaton, Zoe Clark, and Rebecca Williams. And to Tessa Kresh, Olivia Meradian, Kate Weiser, and to the Bentley Historical Library for archival audio. Our theme music is from Personal and the Pizzas. Yes, that's a band name. Additional music from Audio Network and Blue Dot Sessions. Till next time, eat your crusts and don't forget the ranch. Actually, you can skip the ranch. What about the crusts? Just, just skip it. <laughs> Bye. She's She's